Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the book of Leviticus, the Jubilee year is a time when everyone, even slaves, are restored to their families, their land, and their original homes. With this in mind, it is striking that Matthew draws a connection between the generation of Jesus Christ, the seventh generation in a genealogy built around multiples of seven, as the last generation before the Jubilee year. It is indeed striking because the movement of the people, both Jew and Greek, slave and free, is not to Jerusalem, but to the wandering in the wilderness, not to the line of David, but to the king whom the people rejected when they asked for Saul, the God whose kingdom in Matthew is now at hand. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today have I begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 17. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 228 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Throughout the course of our discussion of the Matthean genealogy, Richard, you have made the point that we cannot make any assumptions about the placement of names, the choice of names, the structure of the genealogy. All of it is intentional. And we've shown that Matthew is, in fact, imposing upon a Gentile audience the Hebrew language and the canonical structure of the Old Testament and its storyline. Now we come to verse 17 in Matthew, and it would be easy to assume that when we talk about the number of generations, it's just by chance. But why did Matthew structure it 14, 14, 14? And then why would he waste precious space on the scroll to reiterate the fact that he structured the genealogy 14, 14, 14? Why 14? I mean, he could have done 13. He could have done 15. Is it just a number that he pulled out of a hat because it has to be some number? Or is there something significant about 14? Now, in his commentary on Matthew, Father Paul makes the case 
that these three sets of 14 relate to the Jubilee year in Leviticus. You shall sanctify the 50th year and proclaim freedom throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be the Jubilee year for you. You shall return each person to his ancestral heritage and you shall return each to his family. It shall be a Jubilee year for you. The 50th year you shall not sow. You shall not harvest its aftergrowth, and you shall not pick what was set aside for yourself, for it is a jubilee year. It shall be holy to you from the field you eat its crop. Now, the important point about the jubilee in Leviticus is that seven is included in the statute regarding the appointment of the year. Seven times seven. So something is going on, and in the jubilee there's this restoration that takes place. So suddenly, if you look at the structure of the genealogy, you have six sets of seven, and Jesus begins the seventh set of seven. In Leviticus, you have these small jubilees every seven years. And so once you've reached seven of those mini jubilees, then you have the big jubilee, which is the one you just read, Father. So we have these sets of seven, 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 seven. With Matthew, with 14, you've got two mini jubilees, 14, two more, 14, two more. So then you end up with six of these mini jubilees. You're beginning that last mini jubilee before you enter into the big jubilee. And so Jesus inaugurates the 43rd generation. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, when I was working on my commentary on Galatians, Richard, I was tempted and I held back, but I was tempted to say something about the number of years that Paul was in exile in the north before he came back to Jerusalem. He was in the north for 14 years. He also, in the canonical New Testament, produced 14 epistles. So was Paul producing his body of literature while he was in exile in the north before he came down to Jerusalem to hold Peter and James to account for the content of the gospel and their duplicitous behavior? But rereading Matthew and reflecting on this structure, 14, 14, 14, I wonder if there's something deeper going on here. Is Paul, in his epistles, carrying out the content of the seventh generation, the generation of Jesus Christ, which is a dynasty, a kingdom, a generation that's established in the content of the New Testament? It's an open-ended generation that ends time, so to speak, until the end of time. Matthew is telegraphing this idea that this is the beginning of the end. Once Matthew begins the New Testament... With 14, 14, 14, the attentive reader, when he or she notices 14 appear later on, will be drawn back to this idea. The number 14 can no longer have a neutral sense. It's no longer simply one more than 13. 14 is a particular number that is used. And yes, we have the 14 years in the wilderness. We have the 14 epistles. How do we then draw these? What is the purpose of hearkening back to Matthew chapter 1 when we get to Galatians, when we get to the end of Hebrews and the end of the 14 epistles of, ascribed to Paul, we can't not notice. We're not allowed not to notice when 14 keeps appearing. That's simply a data point. It's indisputable. 14 is certainly there, but why? 
that's the discussion we need to have, and I'm grateful you brought up this point. You cannot simply say that it's just the number 14. You can't. It's literature. Matthew took time to point out that you have this 14, 14, 14 structure. Leviticus deals with the number seven and multiples of seven. You cannot simply dismiss it. This betrays a kind of ignorance of the science of literature. Just because we Americans just talk, it doesn't mean that every generation that ever lived just talked. It certainly doesn't imply that these people just wrote. The fact that you go on Facebook and just write does not mean that when you write on Facebook, you're a writer in the same way that these people were writers. This is a fallacy. Now, with respect to the last generation, those who think about this genealogy as an historical genealogy then fall into the trap that our college professors fell into when they would try to deal with the New Testament. Why did Paul write as though it were the end of the world and then the end of the world didn't come yet? Was Paul crazy? Was he wrong? Was the New Testament off the mark? These questions, again, betray our inability to think in a manner as sophisticated as the people who wrote this text and the people who received this text. We are less sophisticated. We are less nuanced in our thinking. We are the tastes great, less filling, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, pro-anti generation. Our minds have been dumbed down. We are blind to nuance. We are disinterested in meaning and subtlety. And we certainly have no patience for any literature that isn't binary or black and white. I didn't say simple versus complex. We love complex literature that says nothing the way that people fall in love with the book of Job for the wrong reason. The writer of Job is making fun of complex language by putting it on the lips of all the villains in the story. The writer of Job is making fun of the Odyssey by putting it on the lips of Job. Why would God make me suffer? So people embrace the sin in the book of Job, but they ignore the clarity that comes at the end. So I'm not saying that scripture isn't clear or black and white in that sense, but in its clarity, it has depth and nuance and people have no patience for this. So when Paul talks about the coming of the Lord, when Matthew implies that this is the last generation, that Jesus begins the seventh set in a series of generations structured according to the number seven, the last generation exists in the content of the story. And the story is open-ended until the world truly ends, as I said at the beginning of this discussion. The implication is that we live in that generation the way that we realize the promise of the kingdom even though the kingdom has not come. We live and we participate in this last generation, the kingdom of the Messiah, when we walk according to the precepts and the commandments that he gave his life for in the story. While the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, it took them two years before they actually made it into the promised land. 40 plus 2, which is 42. We also have here three sets of 14. 14 plus 14 plus 14 is 42. 
So as we have the beginning of the last phase of the end times before the final jubilee, we also have ourselves posed on the border of the promised land before we enter in with Joshua, who we probably should mention is the same name as Jesus in Greek. Joshua is Jesus. So as Joshua is poised on the edge of the promised land after being in the wilderness for 42 years, because it took the two years to finally get to the promised land, to get to the border, Jesus is now poised to enter into that land. So we're entering into the final phase before the Jubilee. We're poised at the edge of the promised land and that's the number 42, but then we have the fact that it's broken up. Matthew could have said, and from Abraham to Jesus is 42 generations. He didn't say that. He purposely broke it up into 14, 14, 14. We have all this interplay of all these different things going on. It's like when we're looking at the names of the kings. The name of the king means something, but then we have the story from the Old Testament that also comes to bear in the story. We can't say it's A or B or I don't understand what else it could be. We have to keep digging and looking and making the connections we can. Maybe later on, we'll find out that these connections were foolish and they don't make sense. I got no problem with that. But we have to lay them out on the table. And we have to tell the story of what we think is going on. Otherwise, we're not paying attention. The point about Joshua and Jesus is critical because it means that Matthew, a disciple in the Pauline school, is doing the same thing that Paul does in Romans. He is saving the Gentiles by putting them in exile together with the Jews. They are in the wilderness because it's only in the wilderness that God's kingdom can be established. It's powerful that you have something that looks and smells like the inauguration speech of an American president or a Roman emperor or whatever, someone who is rising to power and being heralded and they're explaining why he's so great. It's pedigree. So you have this typical paradigm of this pedigree of the leader, of the ruler. But then what you're establishing looks nothing like what any ruler would establish. And when you draw these connections, you begin to understand what Leviticus is saying about the Jubilee year. It's not talking about the kingdom of Judah or the kingdom of Israel the way that we talk about these kingdoms or a united kingdom. It never was. There is no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Remember that the Pauline school is a rabbinic school. They're not inventing something different. So a kingdom was established in the wilderness under the pillar of fire. The people were fed by bread from heaven. And now in the New Testament, Matthew is saying to everyone, come join us in the wilderness. It's not a coincidence that we're going to find the family in Egypt here in just a few verses. Come join us in exile. Come on a trip with us to Egypt. Eat the bread that God provides. As we undo the choice of Caesar and we undo the choice of Alexander and we undo the choice of Shaul, Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.